Uh, please join me in prayer as we come before our Heavenly Father. Dear Lord, as we continue in our corporate worship of you, in the listening of your word, speak to us, O Lord. Confront us with your word. Challenge us and draw us to the gentle reminder and the assurance that you truly are the God who is for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray all this in his name. Amen. Now, I'd like to begin my sermon this morning by referring us to a report that came out in the Straits Times uh, sometime last year, and you can see it on the screen in front of you. Um, sorry, before that, I think, go back. Yep. Okay. Why are Singapore's elderly still dying alone, undiscovered for weeks? And in this report, it was referred to the increasing phenomenon of Singapore's elderly dying alone, undiscovered for weeks. And very often, it's the smell that comes out from the units that alerts the neighbours to what's happening. Um, that's why the report goes on to say that what is needed is for stronger community bonds from various stakeholders. The government, social workers, from various social agencies. And especially, especially in the absence of family ties for many of these elderly, the neighbours are very important. Huh? So I think there's this Chinese saying, right? I'm sorry, my Chinese is not very good, but uh, yeah, something like um, neighbours are actually very, very important to you. Huh? So, yeah. Somebody can help me here. Huh? But how many of you think you have good relationship with your neighbours? Don't, don't put up your hands, okay? Don't show me here. But the phenomenon left me thinking, uh, it must be a very scary experience for many of those who die alone. Can you imagine this scary experience? Eh? To struggle through life and then to have the very final struggle before you, dying and death, and have to go through that alone, surely, surely there's no other moment where we cry out, where are you, God? And where are you, fellow men or fellow humanity? The next slide, please. Yeah. So to the question, where are you, God? Did you just bring us into this world so that we can experience life for whatever 70 or 90 years that we have? And while the experience may be pleasant for some, there's no doubt that that experience is a struggle all throughout for many others. And when we come to the end of our experience of this thing called life, who then can save us from death? And to the other question, where are you, fellow men? To have someone die in their own home, alone, undiscovered for weeks, I think it really forces us to ask ourselves the question, have we failed one another as fellow humanity? <clears throat> that in the living of our individual lives, we have just been so focused on ourselves just surviving and our personal thriving that we have lost sight of fellow humanity. So where is God and where is fellow men when we need them most? Luke chapter 3 to chapter 4 verse 13 tells us the answer to that crucial question. Both <clears throat> are here in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, <clears throat> you find God. 
And in Jesus Christ, as the son of Adam or the son of man, you find true humanity. And so these two statements form the two points or the two ideas that I have for us this morning. So the very first point then you can see there. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, does what God alone can do, bring salvation to us. Now, the idea of Jesus coming as someone to bring about God's salvation to save us, uh, that is not new. We have already seen that in the earlier chapters in Luke's Gospel. So Luke chapter 1, remember, the angel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the angel said this to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in that same chapter, in the famous portion of what is now called the Magnificat, God is described as the Saviour. God is described as the one who brings down the proud but exalts the humble. He is described as the faithful one who fulfills his promise to Israel. And the main thing to note is that whatever is said of God in Mary's praise in the Magnificat, all of that is said in connection to the child whom she was carrying in her womb back then. So all the way in chapter 1, Jesus is established as someone to do with the salvation that God will bring about. Then in Luke chapter 2, the announcement from the angels to the shepherds, right? And which was read out for us in the opening uh, passage this morning. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And then we have the blessing of Simeon on baby Jesus further down in the chapter that also consists of the message that there was someone who would carry out the salvation God promised to bring. So by the time that we reach the end of chapter 2, we are presented with Jesus Christ, the one who will bring about the salvation that God promised His people so long ago. A salvation that reaches out not just to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And Jesus Himself is said to grow in stature and in wisdom, in favour with God and man. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. So in this sense, when we come to chapter 3, what we find in there is not new. The idea that Jesus Christ has something to do with bringing about the salvation of God. That idea is not new. Instead, what is new in chapter 3 is this. It is as Jesus Christ that God himself has come to bring about the salvation he promised. That's what I think is new in chapter 3. The idea that Jesus Christ as God who has come to bring about salvation. That's shown to us in three ways from the passage. First, we see it in the way that Luke, the gospel writer, refers to Jesus. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 4, Luke uses an Old Testament passage from Isaiah to highlight the preparatory work of John the Baptist. So can we have that? The next slide. Let me read it for us. It is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight 
and the rough pl uh, places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, in the original Old Testament context, Isaiah is portrayed as one who is involved in some form of a preparatory work too. Isaiah is preparing the way for God himself, for Yahweh himself to come and to bring about his plan of salvation. And in this passage in Isaiah, God himself promises to do for the Israelites what he once did for their forefathers. He promises to bring about a second exodus for them. Here, in Luke's Gospel, Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, nothing less, takes this passage and he applies it to John the Baptist. And he's saying that John the Baptist likewise prepares the way for God himself to enact his salvation. Except here, we see John the Baptist really preparing the way for who? For Jesus, isn't it? Which goes to say something about Jesus, that Jesus Christ in bringing about God's salvation is really the same as God himself acting to bring about his salvation. Second, we see it in the way John the Baptist refers to Jesus. So Luke chapter 3, verse 16, the next slide, please. Okay. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John the Baptist knew very well that a prophet of God could baptize with water. Prophets didn't always practice baptism, but some of them did. But even then, no mere prophet of God could baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That seemed to be more like God's role. If anyone could baptize with the Holy Spirit or the breath or the Spirit of God, it would have to be God himself. It would have to be Yahweh himself. And then verse 17, the way that Jesus' work of clearing the threshing floor and separating the wheat from the shaft, that is reminiscence of the Old Testament book of Malachi. In Malachi chapters 3 and 4, Yahweh is spoken of as the God who will come and refine his people. He will separate his people, those who have truly feared him, from those who are arrogant and wicked. So when you pull it all together, John the Baptist seems to be describing Jesus in a way that goes far beyond the shoes of what a mere prophet of God would feel. The way John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus and the way he introduces Jesus is like he's preparing the way for God himself and introducing God's salvific act itself. And then third, we see it in this chapter. We see it in the way God himself refers to Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here we see, or actually more accurately, we hear God himself through the voice from heaven 
calling Jesus as his beloved son. Now, Bible commentators have generally thought of Jesus being the Son of God as referring to the fact that He is the Messiah or He's the Anointed One, that He's the foretold King who would come. And they conclude this from the fact that many of the past kings of Israel, many of these past kings were similarly called Anointed Ones and they were similarly referred to as Sons of God. So passages that lead them to conclude this way would be like, for example, Psalm 2, the most famous one of all, Psalm 2, the Lord said to me, you are my son, or perhaps 2 Samuel 7. So they think that Jesus here is likewise referred to as the Son of God. And from there, they conclude that here at best, Jesus is referred to by God as the Anointed One, as the Messiah, as the true King of Israel, as opposed to simply being another one of the kings. In other words, a lot of people have read this verse here and said that, oh, in here Jesus is shown to be the culmination of all that the kingship in Israel stood for. Now I want to say that I agree with them. There is a sense in here where Jesus, referred to as the Son of God, is pointing to his true kingship in the line of King David. That Jesus is indeed God's true king for Israel and the world. But more than that, I believe that the Son of God, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, it functions more than just an identifier for Jesus' title and his work. Right? It also functions as an identifier for Jesus' being. So in more technical language, uh, what he is. That Jesus, as the Son of God, he shares in the same divine being as God himself. I think we got a hint of this back in chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel speaking to Mary, and just allow me to read for us, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, back there we already got a hint that the being of Jesus will come about in a special way, a unique way. You could say directly from the being of the Most High via the Holy Spirit. None of us can say that about our being, right? I can't go around saying that, you know, I came directly from the power of the Most High via the Holy Spirit. No, we can't. So the only person who can say that is Jesus because He is the Son of God. And the fact that He will be called the Son of God goes to reinforce this point. Jesus shares in the divine being of the Most High, God himself. So pulling together all these three threads, the way Luke, the gospel writer, John the Baptist, and the way God himself refers to Jesus, we see here the point that is brought out in chapter 3. It is as Jesus Christ that God himself has come to bring about the salvation he promised. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, does what God alone can do, bring salvation to us. And that brings me to the next point for today's sermon, as brought out in the rest of the passage. And that is Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, does what man all along should have done, render full obedience to God. See, not only is Jesus God as the Son of God, 
but he is also man as the son of man. In fact, not just any man, not just any fellow member of humanity, but true man, the true human being, the one who shows you and I what being human refers to. It refers to the reference to the one relation that matters most of all in defining what it is to be human, and that is our relationship with God. Now, we see this in the genealogy that spans from Luke chapter 3, verse 23 to 38. And uh, yesterday, we had um, a, a, a DG, and one of the members of my DG just rattled off the passage so smoothly. Yeah. And then I was half-joking with him. I said, can you imagine tomorrow, the service leader will have to read through all the names here. Yeah. So, so I decided to spare Jingwei of that. That's why we didn't have that in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible reading. But in that, the genealogy, um, it just goes back to, to one point. And it, that is in those verses, Luke tracks Jesus' family line from Joseph all the way back to the chapter 3, verse 38, back to the son of Adam, son of God. So in showing the genealogy at this point, I think Luke is trying to show two things. First, even as Jesus has been called the son of God in his baptism, he is also crucially linked to humanity, the very first of humanity, Adam himself. And because Adam finds his being from his creator God, Adam is referred to as a son of God there. Of course, the way that Adam is referred to as a son of God is very different from Jesus being referred to as the son of God or son of the Most High. So with Adam, son of God merely refers to his source, his origin. Huh? Um, just like, for example, how one way that I could refer to myself is that I'm the son of Lun Xiong. Okay, and Lun Xiong is my dad's name, so I'm, I'm his son in that sense. Yep. And in that way, Adam can refer to himself as the son of God in the sense that he draws his origin from God himself. Adam comes from the work of creation of the creator God. But with Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, the Son of God, besides referring to his title as Messiah, it also refers to the fact that Jesus shares in the divine being of God himself. And then second, by inserting the genealogy here, Luke is establishing Jesus' integral connection with all of humanity, even humanity in its original position, as found in Adam. So Luke is connecting Jesus with every man, everyone, by connecting Jesus back to first man, original man. In doing so, however, Luke is not merely wanting to show us how Jesus is doomed, like every man and every other man, to embark on the same path taken by Adam, a path which every other member of humanity has followed after him. So as Bible commentator Scott Spencer puts it, he says this, As both son of God and son of Adam, as one imbued by the Holy Spirit as much as embodied in flesh and blood, Jesus knows what humanity created in God's image and enlivened by God's breath needs in order to thrive. Jesus, as the true man, has come to show us what we need to truly thrive as humanity created in the image of God. And this is shown to us 
in chapter 4 that follows. Jesus is led into the wilderness where he is faced with the temptations of the devil. Except in stark contrast to Adam, Jesus does what is needed in order for humanity to thrive, something which Adam and all of humanity should have done all along, but never did. So by putting the episode of Jesus' temptations by the devil in the wilderness right after the genealogy here in Luke's Gospel, is meant to remind us of the first and original humanity's temptations by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Back then, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve failed. And in their failure, they charted a course for the rest of humanity, everybody else in the human race. The episode of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, it also finds a parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, and surprisingly, it's also Matthew 4. So very easy to remember, Matthew 4, Luke 4. Okay? The emphasis in Matthew 4, however, is more on the first Israelites' experience in the wilderness after they were brought out of Egypt. Back then, they failed. Israel failed. And in their failure, they also charted a course for the rest of the Israelites that will come after them. So I think the similarities are shown for us in the following few slides. And here I took it from uh, a certain commentary. So maybe we can show the first slide. <clears throat> you can see that. The setting in there is the Judean uh, wilderness. Okay? And the issue has to do with a personal provision. And the devil's temptation in there is to magically turn stones into bread for personal food. Right? And if you remember, in Israel's experience, this would have been a very real temptation for them. Why? Because one thing was that they complained about food, about receiving manna from heaven, that they were sick and tired of it. They wanted something else. Right? And Adam's experience, if you remember, in, in, the, in the garden, this very temptation came in that a serpent tempted Adam to consume the only food that God did not provide for them. God provided everything else except one thing, which was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was the very same food that the serpent came to tempt Adam and, and Eve with. Right? Deuteronomy's principle that's shown in there, one does not live by bread alone. Okay? The next one. The setting is at the top of the world, and the issue has to do with power, with political priority. And the devil's temptation was to worship the devil. Worship him, and in exchange, you get all the worldly rule that you want. Israel's experience as seen in the wilderness was that that was what they were tempted to do. They worshipped the golden calf while Moses met with God on the mountain. Right? And for Adam's experience, that in a sense was also at the heart of the temptation when the serpent told Adam and Eve that if they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will be like God. Right? And so the temptation is the same. It's one thing to be like God. It's one thing that power, that authority. Yeah? And the Deuteronomy's principle in there is to fear the Lord your God and serve Him only. And lastly, next one. The last temptation, the setting is the temple pinnacle. And the issue has to do with physical protection or, or, or you can put it as another way. is blessing at all costs. Yeah? And the devil's temptation is to jump off in expectation <clears throat> of a miraculous rescue. <clears throat> and in Israel, we see this in the experience where they were said to be testing God very often 
um, 10 times the word testing God is used for them in their experience in the wilderness, right? And for Adam's and Eve's own experience, it is presuming against God's direct message to them. God said to them, do not take of this tree or you will die, right? And the serpent came. And what was the serpent's temptation to them? You will not surely die. You will not die. God wants to bless you. How can, how can you die in that sense, right? And so Deuteronomy's principle is coming back here is do not put the Lord your God to the test. So I think in the temptation accounts, one can see Jesus reliving the history of Adam and Eve, the first of humanity, and the history of first Israel, except that where Adam failed, where Israel failed, our Lord succeeded in obedience and trust to his God and his Father. Jesus comes as true Israel and true man. Pertinent to our passage in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' victory over the devil's temptations in the wilderness shows us how Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, does what man all along should have done, render full obedience to God. <clears throat> and as I was thinking and reflecting upon this, you realise that indeed, for if I were to ask you and I, what are the temptations that we face all throughout our life? You can boil it down to these three, isn't it? Seeking pleasure at all costs, seeking what we desire, what is pleasurable to us, right? Um, the other one is um, um, wanting power and authority, wanting that command and control, that sense of uh, power and authority in our lives. And the last one is wanting blessing at all costs, right? Wanting our lives to prosper, wanting our lives to thrive. And God, you have to give that to me no matter what. Otherwise, um, yeah, um, I don't know whether you're the true God or not. Yeah. These are the three temptations, I think, that will face all of us in our lifetime, in different stages, in different ways. These are the very three similar temptations that face the Lord Jesus as he was out there in the wilderness. And of course, the message that we get is that where we fail, where we fail so often, the Lord Jesus has succeeded in doing what we should have done all along, that is render full obedience to God. Uh, next slide, please. Here is God, and here is fellow men. I started the sermon by reflecting on the terrible phenomenon of more and more of our elderly dying alone <clears throat> and undiscovered for weeks. I mean, death and dying in itself as our very last struggle is already terrible enough. But to have to go through that alone, I can't even imagine how scary that must be. And surely in those moments, we will cry out, where are you, God? And where are you, fellow man? What you and I have heard from God's word found in our passage this morning reminds us of the answer that in Jesus Christ here is God and here is fellow men and more than that that in Jesus Christ here is God who has come to do what you and I need the most here is God who has come to save us save us from our sin and rebellion save us from death which really is the consequence of our sin and rebellion. After all, if we cut ourselves out from the giver of life, then death is what we will have to face. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, does what God alone can do, bring salvation to us. 
deliver us from death. And the further amazing thing is that God saves, but He does not do it from afar. He does not do it from a detached and abstract standpoint, but He does it concretely. God saves us, humanity, as man himself. He comes as the true human being and he relives the whole of humanity's filled history. He lives your, you, you and I, our, our own personal filled history. He relives it in his life and he does the most important thing that matters to who humanity is, living out our relationship with God. Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, does what man all along should have done, render full obedience to God. This is an obedience that we get a glimpse of here in Luke chapter 4, where the devil comes to tempt Jesus. It is an obedience that will eventually lead Jesus to the cross and his own death. This is how God saves us, by being truly God and truly man, one and the same moment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our response? There is only one response to the Word of God that we have heard this morning, and that is obedience. The same response that Jesus as true man showed His God and His heavenly Father in the wilderness. That is the response that is called of you and I. Obedience. That's the only way for our existence and our thriving. It is in obedience to God and our Heavenly Father. And that obedience takes the shape of trusting in the One who has come as very God and very man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God and the true Son of Man. So this week, I had the blessing of attending the week service of one of our ARPC members' mother. Yeah. And quite a sizable group um, had gathered at the wake service. Um, yeah, the, this member's mother wasn't from ARPC, it was from another church. And quite a sizable group that had gathered was this group of elderly ladies, or what is uh, more commonly called aunties. Huh? They had gathered, yeah. It turned out that this was really the Bible study group or cell group that the mother attended while she was still alive. And one of the ladies, the cell group leader, uh, she was sharing in Mandarin. And she was sharing how in the 10 years since the mother had given her life to Jesus and started joining the church fellowship, how her life had changed. That even in the last moments of her sickness, she was still looking to Jesus. And the cell group leader herself also shared how the one thing that she and the group could do they, couldn't, they felt helpless in the face of this mother's sickness. And the only thing that they could do was to keep pointing and encouraging their sickly and dying sister in Christ and friend to keep looking to Jesus, to keep trusting in Jesus, to not be afraid of what is coming, even as she looks and trusts in Jesus. I was ministered that evening because the faithful presence of this cell group reminded me of the answers to the questions, where is God and where is fellow man? In the depths of our struggles where we need to know the answers the most. That as the cell group, the church fellowship, they did what they needed to do as the body of Christ 
in coming to remind this lady of where God and fellow man is at the greatest hour of need. That they are in the risen, the ascended, and the living Christ Jesus. The one and only Son of God and the true Son of Man. That He and He alone is the one who has done what God alone can do. Save us by doing what man all along should have done. Offer our full obedience and trust to Him. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you and praise you, our Heavenly Father, for reminding us in your word today that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God and the true Son of Man. That in being God, He did what you alone can do, and that is to save us, to cleanse us, to forgive us of our sin and rebellion against you. And that in being man, He did what all along we should have done, and that is listen to you, submit ourselves to you, and trust you fully that it is indeed in this very relationship that we have with you that we will ever discover our purpose and find our thriving. So help us now as your children, as the body of Christ, to keep doing just that, to keep looking and trusting in Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.